BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Lee Bardugo. Lee became a big star with her young adult novels, collectively known as the Grishaverse novels, which have been adapted into the hit TV show on Netflix called Shadow and Bone. In 2019, she made her adult fantasy novel debut with The Ninth House, which Stephen King called, and I quote, the best fantasy novel I've read in years. The Ninth House is currently being adapted for film by Amazon, and Lee is now out with the sequel to The Ninth House, called Hellbent, which is already getting rave reviews everywhere you look. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. I have to admit, I've seen your lineup and I'm pretty intimidated. So it is nice to be among so many luminaries. Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say, I I checked out your Instagram feed and I don't think anyone else in our lineup has (laughs) 600,000 Instagram followers. I think our listeners should know Lee is the kind of writer who has people lining up on the sidewalk outside Barnes & Noble on the on her publication day to to make sure they get a copy. I'm not sure having I'm not sure that's a feather in my cap and maybe it just means I'm online too much. So <laughs> you you're very modest, but I have to say I am also intrigued and excited by your cocktail selection today, which I confess I had never heard of before, the French 75. I'll, I'll start making it if you could tell us the backstory of this drink. Um well, the, the funny thing about this drink is I'm pretty sure it was named after a French artillery gun. Uh, it was created in, during World War One, And I find that funny because the idea was that it gave you such a kick that it would knock you on your butt. Uh, and I believe it was created in the bar that would become Harry's Bar in New York. But um, I will say I find it to be a very civilized drink. I think you can have quite a few without without getting too much of a buzz on. So you should be safe. Today. Well, this is going to be my first one. So so listeners know it's gin, a little simple syrup, lemon juice mixed in the shaker, poured into a cocktail, or sorry, a champagne flute, and then topped with champagne and a lemon twist. So yes. it doesn't sound like it's going to be too sweet. It is probably one you can have more than one. No, of. it's really good. And um, you can also sub um, elderflower liqueur, like a Saint-Germain for the simple syrup you want to be fancy. Oh, that's a good idea. And yeah, I, I always I, want to be fancy. So, <laughs> so have you? Did you discover this in France, or? Because I, I did no, look it up. It's after the seventy-five millimeter French World War One gun. 
Yeah, uh, no, I didn't. I wish I was that sophisticated. I don't remember when I had, uh, oh, yes, I do, actually. There was um, a restaurant here that was on La Brea. I think it was called Tar Pit. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. It was a wonderful old school bistro. And that was the first place I had this cocktail. And I'm one of those drinkers who doesn't like my alcohol to taste too much like alcohol. So, like, I can't, I don't like a Manhattan. I, I wish I did. I'd love to be one of those people who's like, Scotch Rock, please. But I'm not that kind of drinker. So this to me is a very sort of light um, summary tipple. It's a really good celebration drink. And you can also make it as a punch if you want to oh. entertain. Okay. Well, I have just put in the champagne topper, so I'm going to give this a go. This is like when you watch a movie that you've recommended with someone. <laughs> I hope they like they it. They laugh at the jokes. That is really, really good. It is not too sweet yeah. at all. It's just the right amount. It's like you said, it's not too alcoholy, but you can mm -hmm. get it. And uh, wow, that's really good. I was reading online how often that gin and champagne can be combined to to even my friends who don't effect. love gin like this can this cocktail. So I think it's a yeah. good one. All right, great choice. So I also read that you were born in Jerusalem, but raised mainly in L.A. by your grandparents. How old were you when you moved to L.A.? I mean, I was two months old. Um, I really never lived in Israel. Uh, my mom left my biological father and came to back to the U.S., and we moved in with my grandparents so that she could go back to school. Okay. And you're, you're of Moroccan, Lithuanian, and Russian descent. Who, who are you rooting <laughs> for when it's the World Cup? you got a lot of options. I love that you assume I watch the sports ball. I do not. Um, <laughs> the only sports I've ever been into are hockey and baseball. And um, a lot of my family is from Boston, so I was a longtime Red Sox fan. So I was I was a, I was a peak Red Sox fan when things were were, were at their worst. <laughs> so uh, now now I don't watch a lot of sports, honestly. Yeah. Well, I know Morocco had a nice run there in the World Cup. But, they um... sure did. They sure did. And you were also a, a big brain. You went to Yale undergrad, and I read you were a, a member of a secret society there, Wolf's Head. Is that... Uh, I was. Was that a big part of the campus fabric there, the secret societies? You know, there are all sorts of movies like Skull and Bones and things like that about the uh, societies there. Yeah, I mean, I became aware of the societies because of their crypts. These are these big uh, buildings that are essentially clubhouses, but they're not built like ordinary buildings. So for instance, the Book and Snake Crypt or tomb or clubhouse is built to look like a giant mausoleum. It's a huge Greek columned white marble thing, but it's the size of an apartment building and it's surrounded by a wrought iron black fence with iron snakes crawling over it. The Skull and Bones tomb looks like a Neo-Egyptian temple. And um, the Scroll and Key tomb is my favorite and it has this kind of Moroccan scrim over it. Um, Wolf's Head has this beautiful Tudor house with no markings and a wall surrounding it. And uh, Wolf's Head is an exception. They want it to be more democratic, so they have windows, but you can't see into any of them. Uh, and the rest have no windows at all. So there's a kind of weird situation where they're secret societies. You're not supposed to know who's in them, but they could not proclaim their presence on campus more emphatically. It's a kind of look at me, don't look at me situation. So I, of course, as an undergrad, was absolutely obsessed with these buildings and wanting to know what was going on in them. Um, and there's, of course, a lot of mythology around them. If you start to research Yale secret societies, particularly the ancient eight, these eight societies that have these spectacular tombs, you instantly run into the weirdest conspiracy theories. Uh, theories. It's all, you know, Illuminati and Bilderberg and Bohemian Grove and all that. 
So I wouldn't say that it is um, like a fundamental part of campus life and the fabric there. But if you uh, end up in a society as a senior, then you are spending two nights a week uh, in those buildings and with those people. So yeah. in the best of all scenarios, you end up actually having a pretty great experience with people who you might not have encountered otherwise in your college life. Yeah, it's a whole new whole new lane there. I, even for people who don't go to Yale and never went to Yale, you hear little bits and pieces of it. So I, I can imagine if you're at Yale, you at least are aware that this exists somewhere all, you know, sort of right under your nose, really. Very so, much so. And I think that they're kind of a perfect encapsulation of the weird relationship that you end up having with an institution like Yale. If you are there, then you are conscious of all of the lures of such a place and the kind of privilege it gives you and the kind of pleasure that comes with a place like that. Old libraries, mm -hmm. big opportunity. Those societies, I think more so in the past, but certainly still in the present, represent that kind of opportunity, represent that kind of language of power. But I think there's also always a pushback against that because when you're that age, and I think you know, if you have any sense of, of right and wrong, there's a sense of a desire to push back against institutions that embody those things. So that push and pull I think is there. And I think that exists in Ninth House and Hellbent as well. But I didn't want to write an indictment of the societies real. I loved my time there. I just don't think you can write an interesting or honest book about a place like that without interrogating it a little bit. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't get a sense that you were you were trying to tear it down at all. So so listeners know if they haven't read Hellbent or The Ninth House, the books are set on the Yale campus and the secret societies are really a part of the canvas of your work there. Did you get blowback from anyone at the secret societies saying, oh, hey, stop, it's secret, stop writing about this? <laughs> First, I need to apologize to your listeners because... I have um, a, a cough, and if you make me laugh, I will probably just start packing up along. <laughs> but um, no, I wondered. I wondered if I was going to get blowback. But I think that there's a very, and in fact, this was the first book I ever had to really put through legal because there are real people who are mentioned in it and real institutions. And it was interesting what I had to change and what I didn't have to change. And it was also my first book with a disclaimer, and it only exists in the UK edition because they're a little more worried about, uh, I think, suits that yeah, laws the laws there. are a little different over there. And yeah. uh, so there is a disclaimer in the UK edition of Ninth House that says, while the societies are real, as far as I know, magic isn't practiced there and has never been used to fix an election or a football game. Um, because to me, the dividing line is very clear. It's very clearly a fantasy. The premise is essentially that instead of just being kind of old boy drinking networks that uh, hoard particular kinds of economic or social power, they hoard magical power. So each mm -hmm. society is a different branch of the occult and full of arcane knowledge. And to me, that felt like a very fun premise for a book. Um, and thankfully, a lot of people seem to agree. And it's actually been a real joy to have people from Yale and from New Haven, um, you know, take the map, walk the map, of the yeah. book, um, send yeah. photos of that. And I heard from some of the people too, Patrick uh, Pinnell, whose architecture guide was so vital to me, sent me a really lovely email saying, I hear you mention my book and your book, you know? And so mm -hmm. there hasn't, I'm sure there are people who were displeased by the book. I got a hilarious review in The Federalist that I wear as a badge of honor. Um, but in general, the 
uh, response from Yale and from even from people in the societies has been uh, that they get the spirit in which it was intended. Yeah. And it's actually kind of fun because it makes them seem much more powerful and exciting than they actually are. Right. Even magical. I, I want to get into that. Um the sort of universe you've created with these last two books. But I was, want to start earlier with your um, your Grishaverse novels, too. I, I love this term you've coined, czarpunk, which I, I assume is a twist on steampunk, which for, for listeners who don't know this fantasy genre, steampunk, it's inspired by industrial Victorian England and sort of those old Sherlock Holmes. Some of those things can, can kind of get into that genre a little bit. But can you tell us about czarpunk? Yeah, um, so Shadow and Bone, the first of my books in the Grishaverse, is set in a country called Ravka, which is heavily inspired by Tsarist Russia of the um, mid to early 1800s. And that's really where the term came from. It was strange because when I put this book out, um, a lot of people didn't, they couldn't quite get their heads around the idea that this was secondary world fantasy because it wasn't medieval. And I think we're so used to seeing things like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, um, Wheel of Time, you know, that, that had this kind of cod medieval swords and sorcerers background, and that's very much not how um, my world works. Uh, it has a heavy, heavy Slavic influence, and um, the rise of um, industrialization is a fundamental part of the book. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it started out as a joke to try to get people to understand that this was a kind of fantasy, but it, it has had uh, more traction than I expected. Yeah. Um, I, 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 the Shadow and Bone series on Netflix is fantastic, and, and people need to go check that. I, congrats. I, I read it, which is renewed for a second season, too, so that's awesome. Yes, it will air on March 16th, and I'm really excited about it. Oh, that's great. And I know you did a cameo as well in, in season one. Um, before we get into the, uh, the, the more adult side of the, uh, your more recent works, I want to talk a bit about process and just a couple of quick mechanical questions. Are you, are you a morning coffee writer evenings? Uh, unfortunately, in the last uh, year or two since the show uh, went into production and then came out, I have had to be a whenever I can writer, which is challenging for me. But I generally prefer to write during the daytime hours and when the sun sets, I put the laptop away. Um, that said, I'm working on a new book, uh, which is a historical fantasy. and. Uh, my days have been pretty busy in the lead up to the release of Hellbent, so I've been writing at night, and it's actually been really lovely. Um, it's a very different feeling to write at night. It uh, reminds me more of when I was younger in college or even in high school, and writing was almost a survival mechanism. So I, I'm enjoying that. But yeah, I, I can't be precious about when I get to write these days. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good problem to have. Are you? Is there a desk in a particular setup, or can you write anywhere? As long as I have a window and a comfortable couch or chair, I'm good. I have an office that we use for filing and contracts, but I don't work at a desk and I never have. I just can't mm -hmm. do it. Uh, at night, I sit in bed and write. Um, and during the day, I am usually planted in that green velvet couch behind me right. um, in the same spot. There's a little bulge in the cushions that testifies <laughs> to my work ethic. And I just need to be able to look out at something. I really struggle to write in hotel rooms because you're frequently just looking at another building or sometimes a parking lot or an air conditioning unit. Yeah. You mentioned laptop. Do you ever write by hand or are you always typing it in? I write by hand when I get stuck. So if I, so for instance, with this new book, this historical fantasy, 
Um, I'm working on the first act that I want to send to my editor before I leave on tour. And I found myself uh, getting bogged down and not making the kind of progress I should make every day. And so I printed it up and I made notations and um, revisions by hand and then entered them into the document. For me, I will switch between laptop and uh, longhand whenever I really need to. Um, and I certainly always have a notebook with me. And I also use um, my voice memos a lot whenever I get ideas, especially as I'm falling asleep or waking up, because that seems to be the most brittle creative time. Um, so I, I have these sort of odd and occasionally useful, but sometimes nonsensical uh, voice memos that I leave myself and then transcribe, usually when I'm on a long flight for tour. Mm -hmm. How about when you prep before a book? Do, are you outlining? This is a frequent question I ask people on the show. Do you outline it or do you like to just get in and see where it takes you? I have to outline. And this is a fundamental part of learning what my process was as a writer. I wanted to be a novelist from the time I was a kid. And I didn't really know anything about the process of writing a book or what, what options were available to me. And so I had this very bad habit of starting with a great deal of momentum and excitement and getting about a chapter or two chapters or even a solid 20,000 words in and then completely losing momentum. In other words, as soon as the real story has to start, as soon as that second act begins, I didn't even know what a second act was, and I would stall out because I simply didn't know where I was going. So honestly, um, taking a screenwriting course was really helpful for me because I just took that structure and started writing to those beats. And I certainly have messed around with them since. Um, I don't adhere religiously to them. I don't believe that you have to, but I need those kind of signposts on the way to work toward. And especially because if I get bogged down and lose momentum, I want to be able to move ahead to something that I do know. Uh, and that's the way that I tend to write. But I absolutely have to know where I want to end the book and I have to have an outline in front of me. Yeah, I, I agree. It's nice to have that aid, even whether you get to the middle, which of course is a sticking point, or even just, it's easier to start writing an outline than it is to start writing page one. So it can just sort of get the rhythm going a little bit to start outlining ahead of time. I absolutely agree. And I think there's also, you know, the first draft, I, I always call it the zero draft. And it is because nobody's ever going to see that draft. And you have to free yourself in it to letting it be a mess and having stops and starts and um, these kind of like stubs where you, you start going down a road and then you have to backtrack. But to me, that zero draft is where you are telling yourself the story. You're still discovering your characters. You're still beginning to understand the way this world and this story works. And I need to be able, you know, I think people think of an outline and they think of, you know, one and then A, B, C, and then little one, little two. And I, that is not the way I think of an outline. I think of these kind of, when this happens, then this happens until this happens. Okay, mm -hmm. now the next sequence, now the next sequence. And I have three of those sequences in the first act, and I have six of those sequence in, sequences in the second act, and I have three of those sequences in the final act. And that's how I work. And I always need to know what that midpoint is. And I that really helps me to maintain momentum because I, it's essentially like you're, you're working toward the cliffhanger. It's almost like the end of season one. Mm -hmm. Do you sometimes do character sketches as, as well, either before or during? I, I mean, I can imagine that you would almost have like a Dungeons and Dragons monster manual, you know, with your you know, <laughs> demons and goats and, and sorcerers and things like that. You could almost sort of spell out who these characters are in your universe. I really don't. The characters are actually probably the thing that I, I get to discover the most in the process of writing the book. Mm -hmm. I think I have a real popcorn sensibility when it comes to structure. I love plot. I love, sometimes I love plot too much. I have a tendency to get uh, 
wrapped up in in twists and intricacies. But the characters are sort of the pleasure of writing because they are some somewhat more undiscovered. And what I find is they usually start out a little bit as tropes. Darlington is a, a, an overeducated snob. Alex is a brawler with a criminal background. And in the writing of them and in discovering their backstories and the way they interact with each other, they begin, begin to become real characters on the page. I also wanted to ask you about, so you've written both YA, young adult, and adult fiction, and I had this experience where I have three kids, and our oldest is 13. When he was 12, his school did this great thing where they had a father-son book club. So we read, and there's one of the greatest joys is to read a book with your kid at the same time, and you're comparing thoughts about it, and you're, you know, page for page, you're sort of matching each other. And he and his classmates had very sophisticated observations. We read Refugee by Alan Gratz. I don't know if that, it's a YA book. Mm -hmm. It's really terrific. And then, uh, so they all had very sophisticated observations about this book. And then the class as a whole sort of moved on. And the next book they did was Steinbeck of, of Mice and Men, for which they were totally prepared and capable. Mm-hmm. And it got me wondering, where is the line between YA and adult, if the line exists at all? I mean, beyond, you know, more explicit material and things like that. Having written both, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's a very widely debated and controversial topic right now. Um Look, this is what I will say. I have never met a kid, particularly an avid reader, who doesn't read from every shelf, right? Like this is part of the experience of of discovering who you are as a reader and what your tastes are. What your tastes are is pulling books off of your parents' shelf, off of the library shelf, and just saying, "I want to try this. I'm going to dip my toe into this." And I have found that kids actually have a very good barometer for what they what is uncomfortable for them or what they don't want or don't like and they'll simply put a book aside if it feels like it's going places they're not ready to go that said young adult is just a category and it's a category that comes with some expectations you're probably going to find a faster pace you're probably going to find less uh explicit sexual material less violent material and that is the expectation of that category beyond that there's really no difference Mm-hmm. It's really about the expectations of a reader when they pull from that shelf and when they go to the bookstore, and that's all. In terms of sophistication of, of language and of plot and of character, you know, I, there are books that I read growing up, like Dune, which I think you could categorize as young adults. It's a young kid with a messiah complex and special powers who meets a very, very pretty girl with special eyes, and they are about a big old adventure ahead of them. You know, and there are books like um, Aliyah Dunjohnson's Summer Prince and um, The Bone Season, the, I think that's by Laura Ruby, that are, I think, could easily be moved onto an adult shelf. So I think it's really about the reader and the experience that they're looking for more than anything else. So when you sit down to write one or the other, do you feel like you need to get into a certain mode or different gear? Or is it really only a couple of key decisions? Like, you know, I'm not going to have them do this explicit thing or, you know, a couple couple decisions, or is it more a totally different mode for you as, as a mindset when you're writing one or the other? I think that the story really tells you what it wants to be very early on. I knew that Ninth House did not belong in young adults. I knew that I wanted mm-hmm. to go places with the story that I could not go in terms of horror, in terms of trauma, that I could not go if I was in YA. And I also knew that I wanted the stakes for Alex to be different ones than we usually see in a young adult book. So one of, I guess, the distinguishing factors of young adult is firsts, 
right? First love, first exposure to the world where you're coming up against it. And there's a difference between who you see yourself as and who the world sees you as. And there's usually a finite sense to the end of a young adult adventure. You know, the, the revolution happens or prom happens or whatever it is where you then hope the characters will be okay in the future, but you're not thinking too much about how they're gonna get through the next 20 years of their life. That's different in adult fiction. The stakes for Alex are different because she is trying to figure out a way to survive in the world, to take care of her mother, to take care of her life in the future. And it is a different kind of, um, of fear and stakes than you would find in a YA story. One other kind of writing I wanted to ask you about briefly, and this sounds a little little odd, but Instagram is a platform for writing and communicating. And I ask this because you do have such a massive Instagram presence. How, how are you thinking about communicating through that? And, and do you try to have your writing there mirror the book, or it's more just sort of freeform personal communications? Because you're very successful in that platform. And, I mean, I don't think I am particularly suited to social media. I think I am successful on that platform because I have a very loyal readership um, and because a lot of people found me and the books because of the show. And I think I may be hedging a little bit here because I think social media is poison. Like, I think it's the greatest scam that was ever run on creative people. And it really distresses me to see... I hear from a lot of young writers, a lot of not necessarily young, but new and aspiring writers, and they feel completely beaten by social media. They think that in order to succeed in publishing, you have to have a big social media following. And it is so untrue. It is an absolute, it's a myth. The problem is you have people who get big on Instagram or get big on TikTok and I'm not throwing any shade at them, I, you know, more power to them. Like it is a difficult um, medium to succeed in, but they're the outliers. And to me, deciding that you are going to try to build a career by building it on social media first is like saying you're going to try to get rich by going to a casino. You're gambling. You're trying to go viral. You're trying to build an audience. The truth is the work is what matters. Talking about the work is what matters. Um, and social media is just a way to try to present that work to people and to hopefully remind them that you're also a human being, uh, as well as being an author. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. I mean, as well-intentioned as social media was maybe at the outset, and, and maybe there are some executives out there who never had good intentions. I, I don't know, but what it could be well, <laughs> is, is wonderful and, but you're using it in all the right ways. I mean, it's a way for fans to connect with you. And, and I think you're totally right. Like, when that moment came for you, that Stephen King uh, comment, endorsement of your book, The Ninth House, was awesome. And I remember finishing The Stand by Stephen King when I was a kid, and I put it down. And I thought, how did this entire universe come out of one person's brain? But And that's what you do as well in the way that Tolkien has, in the way that J.K. Rowling has. You have created a universe where all these millions of people can travel. And that's why you have such a devoted fan base, I expect, and why these people have flocked your Instagram, despite, you, you know, you're not trying to build Instagram. It, it happened because these people are in your universe and they're like, I need to go connect I mean, with this person. I'm susceptible to this too. I just want to make that clear. I'm very susceptible to like, well, how come I'm not getting any likes? And how come this reel didn't get as many views? as <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's, 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 our brains just desperately want that validation. So I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm above social. And there is this line that we're always walking, I think, as creative people, 
um, I think you know this, between marketing ourselves and doing the work that we're really passionate about. And unfortunately, you can't do one without the other. Uh, I think to attain a state of being somebody like Stephen King, where people want that work no matter what is the dream so that that is mm -hmm. where, you know, your fo focus can be. But yes, um, I think that there's something special about fantasy and horror and science fiction. Um, I think it takes a particular kind of reader to really engage with those worlds and they tend to be very passionate. Uh, I think that was certainly true for me growing up and it still is. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly was connecting you with with many other of the great fantasy writers but i actually when i was reading hellbent had one connection that's a little different because i was thinking of this other writer harlan coben who's also oh <laughs> huge on netflix and he's not a fantasy guy but he is crime and mystery he does often write about some violence and he's not afraid to go to the sexual violence place as you do in here as well but there's also great humor in his books and yours and there's there are amazing plot twists that you don't see coming. Have you ever Thank have you, you ever read Harlan's stuff? I have. I love uh, thrillers and I love mystery. Um, and uh, I I also did take apart a bunch of books when I was getting ready to write Ninth House because it is it is built on a murder mystery, and so uh, I really needed to understand the way that that particular genre functions. But uh, it, it was a, an entirely new set of challenges. So I'm delighted that he came to mind. That's. I consider that a big compliment. Well, there's there's certainly no accident that your books are succeeding so well in these these uh, transitions to book to film or for uh, Netflix and Amazon because you, you've really architected terrific, terrific books. So what's next for you and or Galaxy Stern, who is your, your protagonist <laughs> in Hellbent? Uh, she prefers Alex, but uh, yeah, so there will be a third book in that series. Um, I'm taking a break from that world uh, right now, and I'm working on a, my first standalone. It's a historical fantasy. And I also am working on uh, my first picture book, which is um, it's something I'm working on with my friend, John Picasso. He is a Hugo Award-winning artist, and uh, it's basically Wizard of Oz set in a graveyard, and <laughs> we're pretty excited about it. So, uh, so by picture a, book, what, what is that... Uh... <laughs> Is that targeting a particular age, or how would you describe picture book? I mean, picture books are for kids, but we really intend this as something for parents and kids to hopefully read together. It's mm -hmm. really about dealing with grief and fear. And um, John really wanted to tell this story through the lens of his own culture um, and reframe the way we think about death and maybe offer a different way to think about death for people who are dealing with loss, particularly with younger kids. Okay. Well, that's great. Congrats. It's, I love you're trying so many different things. I, I love that. Um, and succeeding with all of them, one of the luxuries of this career. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to have a sip of my French 75 here as we get ready to launch into the lightning round of questions. Okay. And uh, your f first question, your favorite book as a kid? Um, as a little kid, probably Cat Witch by Una Woodruff and Lisa Tuttle, Bug Cat, who was a witch. And as a teen, probably Dune was was the big one with the big touchstone. Okay. And I know you're about to uh, run off in this whirlwind book tour here, but so maybe you're not reading a book at the moment, but either a book you're reading now or a recent book you've read? Um, I recently read a wonderful YA book called uh, That Self-Same Metal by Brittany Williams. It is set uh, in Shakespeare's time, and her heroine forges weapons for uh, this group of theatrical players. It's wonderfully researched and a lot of fun. Uh, and I probably will 
Um, listen to a book uh, while I'm traveling. I would probably listen to the second Thursday Club Murder uh, book. I like a cozy when I'm traveling. Great. Top few or favorite few recent TV shows that you'd recommend to listeners? Oh my gosh. Okay. Have you watched Flow Horses? No. On Apple? Oh my, it is the best show I have seen in Sorry, a long Sorry, did you say time. Slow Horses or Flow? What was slow it? Slow Horses. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Gary Oldman leads the cast. It is a uh, MI5 spy thriller, but it's about the cast-offs from the agency who nobody wants anymore. And it's just fantastic. We just finished the first season and started the second, and it is definitely one of the best, most, it's funny, it's fast paced it's super smart and i love how unlikable so many of the characters are like to me this is just a masterclass in anti-heroes um i thought the bear was absolutely fantastic um i almost didn't keep watching it because the first episode was so stressful um but it kind of calms down after that and you can tell that people kept their hands off it it is really the work of the creators and the actors and it's really something special and then we just finished a complete rewatch of a good place because before bed, I need a palate cleanser. So <laughs> that's good. Good approach. Yeah, you got to go to bed happy. You can't. You can't have like death. Exactly. And I can't be stressed out. Can't take that with me to bed. <laughs> All right. So I read that you were recently married, January two thousand twenty-two. Yeah. What is what is either the best or the most interesting thing you can share with us about the first year of marriage? I think. I, I thought it wouldn't matter that much that we were getting married because we've been living together for a long time. We lived together through the pandemic, but it turns out I actually love it. Um, I think there's a lot of cynicism about marriage and it's an institution of the patriarchy and it's antiquated and this and that, but the truth is marriage can be anything you want it to be. And for us, it was making public a commitment that we cared about. And I love it. I like, I like wearing my ring. I, I just, I, I, I like it a lot. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful to hear. I'm so happy. Um, Me too. Let's see. Before you were a big star, uh, I'm sure you had a book event out there that was a bit of a clunker. What's your What's your least attended book event ever? God, can I give you like a block of years? Like, I mean, no, truly, like, because the years between like 2012 and 2015, um, I did many, many poorly attended events. That's, but I think that's a part of the game. And I was lucky because early on, um, my my very wonderful publishers sent me out on group tours, and there were times when the, we outnumbered the audience. And the nice thing was, then you yeah. would go to dinner and you'd laugh about it and have a glass of wine and go to sleep. And the wonderful thing about going through that is, when that begins to change. It feels like a miracle. It just feels like this incredible yeah. thing. And then you do reach a point, you know, there are times when you've been signing three hours and you've got another 200 people in line and you think, I, I, I am, I don't want to do this. And it helps to look back and remember what it felt like to look out at a room full of empty chairs. And I think it really makes you value success in a very different way. It does. Way. It does. It's a, it's a, an experience in humility that, that, is worth hanging on to. It's funny you you mentioned the luminaries who have been on this show prior. This is a question I asked to everybody, and everybody has a story. Jennifer Egan was episode number one last year, and she's like, oh my gosh, I had a zero. I went and nobody yeah. came. And now, of course, for you, for Jennifer, to go to a book event, you know, if you can even get in, you've got to reserve your spot and buy the book in, in advance. And so everyone, everyone, even the, the, the greatest names have some fun story 
on this. And in I fact, remember. I was just reading a, I was just reading the yeah, Wall Street I, Journal the other day, and the front page article was about this. Basically, the question I've been asked, I'm like, hey, they're they're stealing my bit. They're <laughs> they're talking about <laughs> how you know the big writers all have a have trouble getting, you know, people early on to their book events. So the Wall Street Journal. I, mean, I remember more. going to a George R. R. Martin event. It was before the show came out, before Game of Thrones came out, and I went and camped out because I am that nerd. And um, and there's nobody there. It was just me camping out. Like I was like, "What is wrong with this town? What don't you understand the genius of the artist?" So, like, I I feel I have been to book signings where I was so grateful. I waited those hours, and I've been to book signings where I regretted that time, and I never looked at the books the same way again. So I want everybody who's coming to a signing to have a good time and to feel like it was worthwhile. But I think too, yeah, like. I don't trust people who have never had to pay their dues or never had a job they didn't right. like or never was filled with dread like that. You need that humility. Um, you need to you need that to build you up. I, I totally agree. Those are the experience. That's the part of life that uh, that fills us up and gives us something to write about in the end. Last True. question. One piece of good advice for the listeners. <laughs> I guess I already covered social media, huh? Um I guess I'm going to steal some Yates because it's, it's actually a quote I use in Hellbent and it's one of my favorites, which is be, be secret and exult, which is take your projects, take your work, keep them to yourself for a while, find people you trust, good critique partners, um, people who can divorce their ego from giving you feedback and, and create in secret until you're ready to put it into the bright light of day. Um, no matter what you do, if you're an artist, if you're an actor, if you're a writer, if you're what, whatever it is. And I guess, I guess this is part two of that, but that's also that don't mistake the hard days of creating for signs that you're on the wrong path. The truth is that if you are struggling, it just means you're trying to do something bigger and better than you've ever done before. And those hard days are just signs that you're doing the right thing. And the way you deal with them really is the difference between an amateur and a professional. Oh, that's great. That's very well put. Thank you. <laughs> Thank well, you. Lee- what a pleasure. I love Hellbent. Stephen King is absolutely right about Thank the ninth you. house as well. And, uh, and good you. luck with the book tour. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.